0: I'm Grant Haver. I'm Zoe Weinberg. And this is Next in Foreign Policy, the podcast where the next generation of national security and foreign policy leaders talk about the issues of today and tomorrow. This week, we're joined by Guy Mintel. Guy is the president of Global Americans, which is a think tank that provides change makers in the Western Hemisphere with up-to-date research and analysis on key areas and issues affecting countries in the region and the tools necessary to promote a safer, stabler, more just and more prosperous hemisphere. Guy, thanks for joining me. Thanks so much for having me, Grant. How did you get interested in foreign policy in the first place? I think I was always
1: interested in foreign policy, but I don't think that I saw it necessarily as a career path until I actually got to college and I started taking Spanish from elementary school on. Took a Spanish course in my first semester of undergrad. Long story short, I ended up befriending the director of the Latin American Studies program at my undergrad, who encouraged me to go to Ecuador for a program that she was running in Quito, Ecuador, that brought about 10 students from the university down to Quito, as well as three professors. And it was a really intensive program based out of Universidad San Francisco de Quito in a town called Cumbaya, right outside of Quito. And it was four days of intense study. Then Friday, Saturday, Sunday, we would go to these really kind of underdeveloped regions in Ecuador and get amazing hands-on experience, whether it was working in, in the Andes with indigenous communities or whether it was working in a place called Valle de Chota, which was largely an Afro-Ecuadorian community. And so I at the time, I was actually planning on being a psychology major, came back from that experience, quickly changed to a government Spanish double major, and then ended up living in Argentina, in Colombia, working on the peace process down there. Then ended up working in the Senate, working on Western Hemisphere issues, and coupled that experience with a law degree along the way. So it was somewhat serendipitous, but it has been an extreme privilege to be able to work on these issues
0: day in and day out. What would you say was the most eye-opening thing about going to South America that really changed the way you thought about your life trajectory?
1: It was a level of not just poverty, but Social exclusion that I had never seen before. I grew up in Philadelphia, right outside of West Philadelphia. I'd seen levels of poverty that, at the time, to me were were startling. But I think the social exclusion, more than anything, was really kind of dispiriting. And to see communities that had just hopelessness and felt as though, in Valle de Chota, for instance, the path out was largely through sport, and outside of sport, there wasn't a sense of kind of the government was behind me or there was a path forward for me. And so I think that kind of created a sense of purpose. And I think there's a quote that I like that it's vocation is the place where our deep gladness meets the world's deep need. And and for me, I think that happened in Ecuador. I was thrilled to be down in South America. I was thrilled to be down in Ecuador. But at the same time, I was confronted with this level of social exclusion that I hadn't experienced before. and it's a feeling that I couldn't easily shake. And when I came back to the States, I think I felt like I had found not necessarily a calling at the time, but something that I definitely would dedicate significant
0: amount of, of of my career to. And I've had now the privilege to do that. So this week, your job took you to L.A. for the Summit of the Americas. Can you tell us what the Summit of Americas is and why this is the first time many Americans are hearing about it? So the Summit of Americas is an international meeting that brings
1: together the leaders of countries in the organization of American states. This one was the ninth iteration, um, and it happens every couple of years. And in the past, it's provided useful opportunities for the heads of government of of Western Hemisphere countries to advance debates on trade, democracy, climate, and sometimes thorny issues such as immigration or U.S.-Cuba relations. The last summit of the Americas took place in Lima in 2018, in Lima, Peru, and it was, it was a difficult moment actually to debate how best to address the region's most urgent challenges because there was an unusual combination at the time of what was then an unpredictable government, let's say, in the United States, and actually President Trump did not attend that summit, a relatively weak Brazil and then a series of lame duck presidents in Colombia, Mexico, and Paraguay. The summit's legacy, the eighth summit, again, in Lima, Peru, its legacy was largely on focusing on fighting corruption. And the final declarations of that summit included a number of important ideas on strengthening regional cooperation, helping public prosecutors, anti-corruption task forces of of federal polices and judges gain a sort of institutionalized platform and channel of communication with, with other countries in the hemisphere. This one was initially there were talks about doing the ninth summit during the Trump administration. I think COVID postponed those plans. And so the ninth summit was now, after a year or so of planning under the Biden administration, just took place this past week. And actually, I just got in to D.C. after a week in L.A. late last night. So I'm excited to now have the opportunity to kind of chew on summit successes and
0: reflections with you pretty much in real time. For many of us, we're not at these big international forums. What is what does the actual logistics look like? Is it just all day you're sitting in a meeting and it has a little thing that says your who you are and where you're from? Or is it a bunch of side meetings? Like what is what is actually participating in something like this look like? All of the above.
1: So there were two kind of parallel official agendas. One was a CEO summit, which was largely outsourced to the US Chamber of Commerce. And then the other was the Civil Society Summit, which was largely run by the OAS, with obviously a lot of support from the State Department. And so those were the, kind of the two official agendas. I had the good fortune of participating in both. These took place in big hotels. So what that basically meant was I was running between those two hotels. And then there were also, as you mentioned, a bunch of side events put on by organizations on a number of issues, oftentimes with VIP speakers. And so the day-to-day, I mean, it was really about... 8 to 8.30 a.m. was typically the start time. And then it ran all the way through late, late at night, because oftentimes there was an event in the evening, then a reception. And it was dialogue on some of the biggest issues facing our hemisphere, which was exciting to also be part of kind of both the Civil Society Summit and the CEO Summit. Because as you might imagine, each of those had a different sort of focus. And each of those also brought different participants different speakers, different panels. And I think also the meetings on the sidelines of the summit were, from a personal perspective, extremely productive in terms of forging partnerships, in terms of trading notes, in terms of engaging possible stakeholders. And I think a value-add of a full hemispheric summit like this is that you basically have one-stop shopping on all of our work in the hemisphere, and it just puts a lot of relevant people all in one place. So Most heads of state in the hemisphere were there, but also a number of really important political actors in the U.S. domestic context. So obviously, Mayor Garcetti was there, uh, Gavin Newsom. There was a congressional delegation that attended. Secretary of State Blinken was in attendance. The vice president was in attendance. Vice President Harris, Special Climate Envoy, Secretary Kerry was in attendance. So it was was a grouping of really high-level individuals all talking about what I think we all collectively believed were some of the biggest issues in the hemisphere.
0: The Biden administration wanted to host this. We wanted to have it in L.A. What were they trying to accomplish through the summit? The summit
1: was focused on five big things. It was providing food security assistance, collaborating on climate, creating a framework for economic cooperation, declaring commitments to migration, and also making real investments in health and health care and health workers most of those things were accomplished. Um, I think it exceeded my expectations in a lot of ways, but that probably requires some unpacking because as you may know, there's been a lot of chatter over the last few weeks about who was invited, who wasn't invited, who's going to attend, who's not going to attend. And while not downplaying or or diminishing the fact that certain heads of states determined it was more in their interest not to attend, I think that framing is also somewhat problematic. I think there is a lot of hand-wringing about kind of what these absences say about the US's role in the hemisphere. I think particularly in comparison to the first summit of the Americas which took place in 1994 in Miami, when President Clinton's star power in Miami provided that first summit with an air of great accomplishment, and I think a lot of the think pieces that we'll probably see in the coming days will center on that sort of contrast between today and 1994 and what that says about the US's role in the hemisphere. And yes, I do think that Mexico was was kind of the big snub. It says as much about Mexico in some respects as it does about the U.S. And I also think that despite the absence of heads of states from Mexico and some Northern Triangle countries like El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras, I think they did advance the the summit as a whole and the Biden administration more particularly, they did advance the discussion on a set of specific U.S. proposals focused on the hemisphere. I think there were Clear investments in economic frameworks, in climate frameworks, in immigration frameworks, in reforming multilateral banks. All of this, I think, was spelled out in official agreements that a number of attendees signed on to. The Los Angeles Declaration, for instance, was a sort of non-binding migration blueprint that was unveiled by the, the summit leaders on Friday, which sought to establish legal pathways to enter countries, but also set new parameters around aid around all of these agreements were were big announcements that the Biden administration had prepared related to these themes. So the administration committed to a threefold increase in resettling 20,000 refugees from the Americas over the next year. They reached pacts and agreements about climate change, about driving clean energy, about advancing food security, about mobilizing new investments, and also about incentivizing trade. Though I think some of these still require more unpacking. A lot of these were really good, important frameworks, but they require the U.S. and, and other nations to follow up and to pay kind of sustained attention and devote sustained
0: resources to these efforts. And if there's one thing I know about the U.S. government, they're really into long term projects in Latin America. You know, they're really just committed to sustained engagement in the region. And, you know, time and time again, we've been nothing if not eye on the ball on these issues. Yeah, I sense a bit of sarcasm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I I guess one of the things that frustrates me about when we talk about the Western Hemisphere is that there is so much necessary around economic development, food, health security climate is going to have a major, major impact on some of our neighbors, including us. Like, right, climate's going to be a problem for us, but our neighbors are in even a worse position to handle it. And all of the answers to that are, right, what foreign policy experts, when we talk about this, say, like, oh, they're long-term, right? Investment in education is a long-term thing. Investment and in, like, eliminating corruption in some of these countries is a long-term thing. We just haven't done our part, right? We haven't been committed to those solutions and so i just don't see any long-term frameworks as being helpful here what do you think do you think that we are committed now to these frameworks or do you think it's you know we'll punt it into the grass to say we all have the right idea about what to do here but we just won't have the follow up yeah i mean i
1: think that's in part the role of it certainly it's the role of of the public sector but it's also the role of civil society to hold the public sector accountable so speaking as a representative of of civil society i think that's in part our responsibility to make sure that there is accountability, to make sure that there is follow-through. Secretary Blinken sat on a panel with the new Foreign Minister of Canada, Foreign Minister Jolly, and um, Foreign Minister Moines of Panama, and, and said something that I thought was really well received by the audience there. He said, We have a summit that takes place over three days. The civil society summit was three days, and, and the CEO summit was a bit longer. Um, but what really matters is what happens in those other 362 days. And he basically made a call to action to the attendees. He said, how can we make sure that those 365 days per year, we have engagement with civil society, civil society is holding us accountable, but we in turn are holding ourselves accountable. And I think that's part of the conversation that took place in the civil society forum, which is really interesting, again, in comparison to the the conversations taking place in the CEO summit, which were equally productive. But civil society was largely a question of how do we make sure that the commitments and the talking points and the rhetoric actually leads to something tangible? And I know that when you talk about climate, for instance, there was a plenary with the Jamaican prime minister, uh, Andrew Holness, and he said, though we don't yet have all of the details of these frameworks, whether it was the America's Partnership for Economic Prosperity or some of the other frameworks that were revealed over the past couple of days, he said he's hopeful. he's hopeful because this lays out guide uh, guardrails and guidelines as to how to proceed, and it shows that the United States is at least thinking and moving towards working with and cooperating with partners in the region. and I think what we need to do now is to make sure that that actually comes to pass and so he said his message uh, Prime Minister Holmes did to his people when he returns to Jamaica is one of hope and one that shows that. The countries in attendance were deeply committed to moving forward on key issues. Now what we need to do is make sure that there's follow-through.
0: So you mentioned earlier that there was a major hubbub before the summit about who wasn't getting invited and then as a result, who wasn't going to come. The U.S. didn't invite Cuba, Venezuela, Nicaragua, which resulted in, as you said, most notably Mexico just not showing up. Why did the Biden administration decide to put democracy on the agenda, even if it wasn't a key feature of the summit itself?
1: For the Biden administration, the thought was Cuba, Venezuela, and Nicaragua don't meet the requirements of the Inter-American Democratic Charter. And from their perspective, there was, I think, a counterproductive effect in terms of elevating the leaders of those countries on, on a platform like this where they haven't met kind of the bare minimum standards of participating productively in the inter-American system. I think that was a decision that the Biden administration made probably weeks, if not months ago. I think the issue was kind of the rollout of it all, because it came out relatively close to the actual summit, which meant that the news attention over the past couple of weeks has largely been, okay, this is rolled out. How will countries respond? This is how X country responded. This is how Y country responded. And it just led to kind of a snowball of news that was kind of high schoolish in terms of who's going to attend, who's not, who was invited, who's not. Certainly important. And I don't want to diminish the importance of who's attending and who's not, or who was invited and who's not. But I think that rollout, again, led to this sort of trickle of news about attendance rather than about some of the things I think the Biden administration probably wanted to talk about, which was kind of some of these big frameworks that they're putting forth and that they've now put forth after, after a week of engagement. That's where we are now. I think, again, a lot of the, the pieces coming out after the summit will probably focus on that. We'll focus on the impact of what that exclusion meant. I know that the Chilean president used his time on stage, though. I think he was kind of a rock star of this week. I think he was both at the CEO summit, the civil society summit, and the official agenda was widely hailed as kind of a a new sort of left-leaning leadership in the Americas. He also mentioned that, yes, we have problems with these countries, but it would be to our benefit to look them in the eye and tell them we have problems with them for X, Y, Z reason, and then hold them to account in person. So I think it was a decision the Biden administration made. I think their basis, again, is that they didn't meet the minimum requirements of the Inter-American Democratic Charter. And I think for them, it meant that the countries in attendance were countries that they could work with on the issues that they wanted to push forth. Do you
0: think that was the right decision?
1: It's difficult to say. I mean, I think if the frameworks that they've put forth move forward and are implemented with kind of all of the substantive heft that I think some of us at the Civil Society Summit would like then I think it was a distraction for a number of weeks. But I think, again, there's substantive progress made here. I'm sympathetic to the arguments that, that Boric made. Um, and I think there are other fora where you can engage those leaders and look them in the eye, tell them what you think about their public policy. But I think if the Biden administration's calculus was that this made for the most productive summit, then I understand that. And, and then I think time will tell whether that was true.
0: One of the attendees who, you know, is is sort of a wannabe autocrat, even if not, in fact, an autocrat was Brazil's president, Bolsonaro. He had his first meeting with President Biden. And to me, this looks like a major concession to get Brazil to show up because Biden was not going to meet with Bolsonaro because he's a bad actor. He's been laying the groundwork for undermining the presidential election that he's contesting in the fall. What do you make of the meeting Do you think that Brazil under Bolsonaro is a helpful player in these things, or do you think it's hard to manage them? So I'll caveat what I'm
1: going to say with, this is basically two days after the summit. And so I think some news about what was discussed privately has still not made its way into kind of the public sphere. But I I think, look, I think Brazil and the US have almost two centuries of diplomatic relations. It's one of the biggest economies in the hemisphere. Sure, uh, Jair Bolsonaro was a close ally of former President Donald Trump, a supporter of many of his policies that are in many ways anathema to, to this administration. He's opened the Amazon to more logging and mining. He's made it easier to buy guns in Brazil. He's denigrated the idea of transgender rights. He's moved closer to Vladimir Putin of Russia. And I think the polls in the upcoming elections in October in Brazil show that he's trailing by a lot to former President Lula. Um, but I think what, what was said publicly was that the engagements were productive, that they were able to talk on, on a whole host of issues about Brazil- U.S. cooperation and about a search for solutions to challenges like food security, energy transition, sustainable development. They talked about bilateral cooperation in confronting the COVID-19 pandemic and the ability to kind of jointly contribute contributing. To strengthening the capacity of the region in terms of health, they also spoke about some of the things that we discussed in, in terms of these frameworks that came out, especially in welcoming refugees, largely coming from from Venezuela. So I think it was an opportunity for them to engage. I think it was a hour long private meeting, and I think Bolsonaro told reporters afterwards that he and Biden talked very superficially about the election. I think some of the news that came out within the, the past forty eight hours is that. Bolsonaro wanted to talk a bit more about the elections, and obviously he's been somebody who has signaled that he might discredit the results of the election if they don't go his way, which is obviously extremely problematic. I think there's also an opportunity for, and it's unclear whether this happened behind closed doors, for President Biden to press Bolsonaro, a developing story now with a British journalist named Dom Phillips and Bruno Pereira, who's a Brazilian indigenous expert who've gone missing in the Amazon. And I think all of the coverage of that story has been that the Brazilian government's response has been ineffective and slow. So I think it was an opportunity to engage with one of the biggest economies in the hemisphere and to hold them to task on some of the biggest issues um, that the, the Biden administration sees,
0: not only in that country, but in the hemisphere more broadly. I'm sorry for a sort of a tangential question, but how strong is the Brazilian state? Like, does it have effective control over the entire Amazon, or is it more like a wildlife preserve, where they kind of control the outside and what happens inside, outside of logging and mining as kind of a black box?
1: The criticism of, of, of President Bolsonaro has been, they've just been slow to deploy the resources to actually find these individuals. Like, it was about 48 hours before we saw a real government, a real kind of concerted government response. and. They were there working with indigenous, the, the journalists and, and, and uh, Bruno Pareda were there working with uh, indigenous communities. And indigenous communities were issuing calls to the government to do something, to send resources. So, the, the short answer to the question is that they have the capacity to do something. And the criticism has largely been they've done close to nothing. I think now they've started with international pressure to deploy some resources. But it's also true that Bolsonaro has an uncomfortable relationship with. These illegal mining groups and has been less aggressive in terms of prosecuting them. And
0: so I think that's part of why the criticism has been so loud and rightfully so, I think. One country that did not attend the summit but is sort of looming large over it is China. Obviously, the US is the big player in the region, but less so now because China is actively engaging with some of these countries. And obviously, They care less about corruption. They care less about environmental standards and human rights and and health. What do you think the impact of China's increased investment in Latin America means for the U.S.'s role in the region? So
1: look, Global Americans is a think tank. We engage Capitol Hill and the executive every day. And I think on Capitol Hill in particular, where where I, I used to work, one of the few things that inspires bipartisan action these days is countering China. And so I think policymakers are keenly aware of what China's increased role in the hemisphere looks like. We've also, as an organization, done a huge study on mis- and disinformation in Latin America in the way in which Chinese and Russian state media in particular are perpetuating certain mis- and disinformation messages to further their geopolitical agenda. So I think Chinese presence as a whole is something that Uh, U.S. policymakers are keenly aware of. It's something, again, that inspires bipartisan action. I think something that came out of this summit was a huge commitment to facilitate investments for multilateral development banks over the next five years. Um, I think it was something in the neighborhood of $50 billion. I think in the backdrop there is making sure that kind of these institutions that the U.S. is a part of are actually investing in the region. I think we we talked about this a bit um, maybe 10 or 15 minutes ago. This idea that U.S. engagement with the hemisphere has been somewhat sporadic, less concerted in recent decades than it needs to be. And so I think this summit was important in kind of issuing a call to action, not just for all of the countries of the hemisphere, but more specifically for the U.S. to engage. And I think that question loomed large throughout these days, this need for the U.S. to be there, the U.S. to show that it's a faithful and reliable partner and that it's willing to make the sort of investments that China is with, as you say, fewer strings attached, though there are certain issues in terms of rule of law and other things that are
0: associated with their investments. You're fresh off the plane coming from LA. What do you think are going to be the the main takeaways from the summit for you?
1: I think a lot of the focus will be in in recent days, I imagine, on this Los Angeles declaration. I think the Los Angeles declaration is something that the administration Thinks is is a big forward moving piece on, on immigration. Um, it's centered on responsibility sharing and economic support for countries that have been most impacted by refugees and migration. And so the declaration it's, it's closely tied to this other big one that they made, which was the America's Partnership for Me- for Economic Prosperity. The latter was a bit more vague in terms of what it was offering. It was basically a kitchen sink economic agenda framed in progressive terms that was widely well-received and, and and palatable for, for attendees, but that will require a lot more unpacking, a lot more distilling, and then ultimately bolstering and crystallizing. Whereas the Los Angeles Declaration, the understanding is that the administration feels as though they have sign-off from all relevant players. It's, it's organized around four key pillars, stability and assistance for communities, expansion of legal pathways, humane migration management, and coordinated emergency response. That one in particular, and then kind of as they made this announcement, they also hailed some of the successes of Colombia's leadership in responding to the Venezuelan crisis. Adjacent to that was the announcement by the Ecuadorian government that they're similarly going to make increased commitments to formalize the citizenship of of Venezuelan migrants and refugees. Costa Rica made a commitment of renewing special temporary complementary protection for migrants from Venezuela and Nicaragua and Cuba. So I think that is seen by the administration as a big step forward. Again, I think the, the uh, America's plan for economic prosperity is broadly well-received. I think it just is gonna require a lot more engagement to, to kind of figure out exactly what that means. And I think just my general takeaway is it was an important meeting to signal, to signal not only the Biden administration's commitment to the hemisphere, its interest in engaging further, but also to signal on what lines it's interested in engaging. And then the next steps, of course, are to make sure that there's follow-through and that there are subsequent meetings to make sure that there's follow-through. I think one of the questions going into these meetings was this question of whether huge summits like these are as effective as regional summits. And I think that's an interesting question worth unpacking. I'd probably advocate for smaller regional summits at more regular intervals. I think those meetings would allow focused discussions with leaders of subregions where US interests are a bit more coherent. It also allow for better defining each subregion's relationship with the countries in it in the United States because I mean if you look at all the countries that attended there's huge diversity, right, in terms of the interests, the goals, the the demographic makeup of let's say Canada compared to Brazil compared to Jamaica. And so doing it at a sub-regional level, I think would allow for the sort of sustained high-level attention U.S. interests in the region merit. And there's been, this is an argument that's been posited by a number of academics in recent years. Dan Restrepo most recently wrote a piece about it in the, the LA Times. So I think there's something there. That said, I do think that, as I mentioned earlier, the ability for all of us to meet in one place From folks for civil society to have the opportunity to engage with policymakers all across the hemisphere, all in one place, provides, I think, a really unique opportunity to build out lines of collaboration in a way that these regional summits make a little bit more difficult. So all in all, I think it exceeded expectations in a lot of ways, but that's in part because I think expectations had been set relatively low given the snowball effect of who's
0: coming, who's not, news coverage over the past couple of weeks. What's something that you didn't see happen at the summit or you're not seeing in America's foreign policy towards the region that you think would be transformative for the people of the Americas and for how we view the world?
1: The absence of the Northern Triangle countries in Mexico was disappointing. And I think a lot of U.S. policymaking, rightly or not, is is influenced by the immigration question. And so I think it was a very noticeable, loud absence by the heads of state of the Northern Triangle countries and Mexico. That said, a lot of them did send foreign ministers. And so it wasn't as though they had no presence. And in the same way, I think, though the heads of state of Cuba, Nicaragua, and and Venezuela were not present, civil society did fill that void. And actually, I think one of the things that was really impressive was the presence of Nicaraguan and Venezuelan civil society in particular. So I think one of the issues that was less discussed that I think would be important to discuss was those, There was discussed in the Civil Society Summit, less in the official agenda and less in the CEO Summit, were those thorny questions of immigration and relations between the United States and Cuba, the United States and Venezuela, and the United States and Nicaragua, and, and providing a candid forum to engage on those fronts. And that might have happened in private settings, but to do so with civil society present in a more intense way. I think would have been really beneficial. And I think the China question was not necessarily addressed pointedly, and maybe that's tactful, but providing maybe an offshoot where there could be kind of a working group meeting on what China's presence in in the region might mean, uh, how the U.S. should be engaging with China in the region, if at all, and how the U.S. should be thinking of countering some of the, the more negative impacts of Chinese presence was less of a focal point than some of the other pieces that I mentioned earlier.
0: So you mentioned immigration and how that's been kind of a focus of Americans for years. When you talk to other Americans about Western Hymn issues and why they should care about them, setting aside immigration, what do you say? Why, why should we be focused on our neighbors like this? I think it's, Opportunities. Um, I
1: think opportunities with countries that share a lot of the same values, uh, a lot of the same cultures, a lot of the same goals. And I think opportunities in the sense that these are countries that we don't give as much attention to as we do, say, countries in Western Europe. And so it's opportunities as a business to invest. It's opportunities to, to share best practices. It's opportunities to work together on some of the biggest issues in the hemisphere, like climate. I think it's it's an opportunity that makes sense. And um, I think when we talk to policymakers, obviously uh, a lot of them, if they're on the relevant kind of committees, whether it's the Foreign Affairs Committee or the the Senate for Foreign Relations Committee, they think about geopolitical issues as well in terms of Chinese presence. But I think opportunities is, is something that we need to highlight more because oftentimes the debate is framed as national security risks. Uh, it's framed as immigration flows and what that might mean, not just in terms of taking jobs and not just in terms of issues at the border, but also how that might affect domestic political races, which I think diminishes the humanitarian plight of those folks seeking asylum. I think diminishes kind of how we can work in a more systemic way to to address some of these issues, some of these kind of root causes. And so I think speaking in terms of opportunities, opportunities to invest, which in turn create more formal job opportunities for people in the region, which in turn make those countries Safer, which in turn make us safer, is a framing that is not necessarily used enough. I think so often we fall back into kind of the negative framing of the situation. We need to invest so that this does not happen rather than we need to invest so that this does happen.
0: Before we go, Colombia is in the middle of a presidential election. We're just days away from their second round of voting. What should we be looking for in this election? Colombia is a country that
1: I know very well. I used to live in Bogota and have worked on Colombia for a number of years. It's a really fascinating race because I think we have now two anti-establishment candidates in Gustavo Petro and Rodolfo Hernandez that have really captured a discontent that's roaring not just across Colombia, but, but across the region, a region that was crushed by the pandemic. And voters are really punishing incumbent presidents and demanding someone, anyone that's different. And I think it's, more than just discontent with the pandemic it's discontent with longstanding socioeconomic inequality and it's also showing kind of the, the pandemic did how fragile the social contract is and was and so i think in colombia in particular there's an added element of disgust with police violence with a failure to implement key provisions of the 2016 peace accords i mean hernandez is kind something of a surprise um i think For much of the first round, the thought was that it was going to be Gustavo Petro, who of course ran in 2018 as a leftist anti-establishment candidate versus, I think the thought was it would be Federico Fico Gutierrez, who's the former mayor of Medellin, who represents a more establishment type figure. But in a surprise, Hernandez started surging in the weeks leading up to the end of the first round, and he ended up beating Fico Gutierrez by about a percent which now actually, though Gustavo Petro performed much better than both of them in the first round, actually I think puts Hernandez in the driver's seat because the thinking is that most of Fico Gutiérrez's votes will go to him, and a good chunk of Sergio Fajardo, who's kind of the centrist, center-left candidate, will also likely end up with Hernandez. I think it'll be closer to an even split with the Fajardo votes, but almost entirely the the Fico votes will go to, to Rodolfo Hernandez. So I actually think Rodolfo is in the driver's seat Rodolfo is a really interesting figure. He's a former mayor of a middle-sized city. He's a political outsider. He ran a self-funded campaign from his city about nine hours outside of the capital, Bogota. He packed no plazas. He participated in very few public debates. He has few connections to political parties. And yet he beat out not only the conservative candidate backed by the political establishment, but also Sergio Fajardo, the, the guy I just mentioned, who has been in the political game for for quite some time. And now he's running neck and neck in the second round with Gustavo Pedro. I think it's the polling as of today is that it's like a technical tie between the two. Um, But again, I think that a lot of people are expecting Rodolfo to get a lot of Fico's votes, which in turn would put him in the driver's seat over the next week or so. It'll be an interesting race. I mean, again, I think the biggest thing here is a... Kind of complete rejection by the Colombian electorate of traditional political parties and establishment figures. So it is kind of turning the page on the politics of the past. Um, I think, again, by all accounts, Petro is in a bit of a difficult position. In part because he made his campaign in the first round and, and really for years as a contrast between continuity and change, where he clearly represented the change. And now he's had since the end of the first round to now. Just a few weeks to basically change that narrative and to work to represent Rodolfo Hernandez as a bigger threat than he, because he banked on the the disillusioned vote, really rallying behind his anti-establishment rhetoric. But he's now competing for that disillusioned vote. And as someone who was a former mayor of, of Bogota, the country's largest city, also a former presidential candidate who has been visible and present in public for years, he actually appears much more an establishment figure than, than Rodolfo Hernandez. So it'll be a really interesting kind of race to the finish here. I think it shows the fact that these are the last two candidates standing shows the real struggle and pain and disgust of the Colombian electorate in this moment. And again, I think it's centered on Colombia standing as one of the most socioeconomically unequal countries in the hemisphere, a gap that was exacerbated by the pandemic. It also centers on an institutional crisis within Colombian politics that has really eroded the relevance of traditional political parties and party elites. And then also, I think an interesting element here is that we've seen a slight change in recent voting preferences of the Colombian electorate, where it's no longer just a choice of where you stand on questions of war and peace. And it wasn't always just a choice, but that was always kind of the biggest question, and, and I don't think we saw that as clearly in the last election in 2018, in part because the peace process was still very new, and it felt much like the elections of old with Ivan Duque, the current president, and, and his Centro Democrático party having led the no vote to the peace process, ushered in by his predecessor, Juan Manuel Santos, who in turn won the Nobel peace Prize for his efforts. But it feels as though the current status quo is intolerable. It feels as though... Those domestic circumstances in terms of the economy are are far more top of mind for voters this go around than the question of where you stand on the peace process related to what was then the longest running armed conflict in
0: the world. Where are we in that peace process? If it's not a big issue, is it that everything is just going really well and it's, it's all the things that they promised happened are happening, or is the peace process just secondary to the economic issues that everyone worries about kind of all the time
1: yeah it's it's more the latter than the former so i mean i think i'm relatively critical of of what this administration in colombia has done in terms of implementing key provisions of the peace accord and i think there's still a lack of state presence in a lot of regions which creates a power vacuum for illicit actors to fill i think one of the biggest pieces of the, the peace accord was this question of kind of rural reform. And, and part of that piece was not only to, 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 to kind of have state presence in those areas outside of the big major cities of Colombia, of, of Bogota, Medellín, and Cali, but also to kind of correct deep inequities in the Colombian countryside. Um, and that has been the least implemented part of the accord. I think the agreement that ended the role of the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia, of the FARC, What was, again, the longest running armed conflict in the world at the time, which had displaced millions and killed more than 260,000 people, led to the demobilization of some guerrilla fighters under the deal. It also created a transitional justice system It inaugurated a search unit for disappeared people. It guaranteed congressional seats for the FARC until 2026, and it pledged 3 million hectares for landless farmers and others. But the sixth section of the accord, this, this piece on rural reform, is not on track to reach majority implementation within its 15-year timeline. And they get present just about 4% of the rural reform section has been fully implemented by the deal's fifth anniversary, which was in November 2021. And some 14% of that provision was partially finished. 67% had seen minimal advances, 67% that is and another 14% hadn't progressed at all. And so I think one of the positive things here is that both candidates in this uh, second round, both leftist Gustavo Petro and uh, and Rodolfo Hernandez, have pledged to fully implement the deal. And so the new administration's top challenge will, will be pushing the many minimally implemented points toward partial implementation and then eventually toward completion. But I think the lack of rural reform implementation has really limited growth in the agricultural sector and the rural economy. And I think the, the next government really needs to emphasize these reforms to incorporate more citizens into the legal economy, to reduce poverty, and to really spur rural development. Because I think one of the, the I think, most powerful messages of one of the campaigns here, and I think it was picked up by a number thereafter, was this question of Colombia Profunda. Uh, how are we gonna represent, Colombia Profunda meaning kind of the, the profound or the deep Colombia. And what that refers to is Colombia of the regions, which it's a country that has historically been rooted in power bases in the cities. And, and so kind of lifting up this question of how are we going to represent the rural communities that have largely been isolated from the political system, which is actually an interesting kind of way to tie in the beginning of our conversation here when I was in Ecuador and that same issue there, that the rural regions in some of these countries are so removed from the power bases that the ability for them to actually influence policymaking is minimal. And so I think this, the implementation of this provision will be key for the next presidency and the next president in Colombia. And I'm hoping that the U.S. government can provide more
0: pressure for them to implement it uh, in, in the coming years. So with that, let's move on to our final segment where we talk about something we're following in the news, either politically or culturally. Guy, what are you following this week?
1: I want to talk a little bit about something also that came out of the summit in some respects. Um, But I was recently down in the Dominican Republic working on a project that Global Americans is looking to launch. We we have another project in, in the Caribbean that's on climate change. But we're looking to launch a project looking at what has been so far an early success of the Biden administration's foreign policy in the hemisphere, which is the Alliance for Development and Democracy, which has brought together the presidents of Panama, Costa Rica and the Dominican Republic within a democratic framework along five main points. It's regional leadership, migration and refugee issues, environmental sustainability and climate change, security, justice, and the fight against corruption, and economic growth and labor uh, investments and opportunities. So the alliance was formed in September 2021. The reason that I bring it up now, though September 21 isn't that far away, particularly in this pandemic world we're living in where everything seems to blur, But the reason I'm following it more closely now is because on Friday, so uh, about, let's say, 36 hours ago, 48 hours ago, Ecuador was announced as the fourth country to be part of this initiative of political dialogue, cooperation, and sustainable development. And I think that's a really exciting new development, not only for Ecuador, not only for the alliance, but actually for U.S. interests uh, in in the region, because all of a sudden there's now a, a block of countries that are broadly committed to some of these important issues And as we think down the line about implementing some of the frameworks and ideas of the Summit of the Americas, I think that block is forming a sort of regional leadership that can keep things moving and moving in the right direction.
0: This week, I have a confession, dear listener. There's only one thing that I love more than my wife and Jesus, and that is McDonald's. I've been eating roughly the same order at McDonald's for more than a decade, and I navigate across the East Coast with my MPS or McDonald's positioning system, which is based solely on which McDonald's I either have or have not been to. So I've been following the news of McDonald's leaving Russia very closely. McDonald's had a major symbolic importance in Russia, as when it first opened after the end of the Cold War, it was seen as a sign of the new openness of Russia to the West. Which makes the reopening of McDonald's under new ownership in Russia after they sold all of their stores a sign of the darkness that's really overtaken the country. However, there are two bright spots of this story. The first is that as part of this sale, the new owners were required to retain all 62,000 employees that worked for the Golden Arches before it left. And the second is that the new name of McDonald's in Russia is. Vakushni Toyska, which roughly translates into tasty, period. With that, thanks for joining us. Next in Foreign Policy is produced in cooperation with Foreign Policy for America's Next Gen Initiative and is a proud member of the DSR network. Please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find the show. You can follow me online at Grant Haver. Follow Zoe Weinberg, our co-host who wasn't able to make it today, at Z Weinberg. And follow Guy at Guy Mantel. If you are a foreign policy expert under 40 and want to be featured on the show, be sure to follow the link in the show notes. This week's episode is actually brought to you by Vakuzhny Toyska, whose new jingle is Ba 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 Ba. Putin says you must love this. Join us in two weeks to hear more about what's next in foreign policy.